Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with our Spring 2016 Joan Shorenstein Fellows, Joanna Dunaway, Joanna Jolly, Dan Kennedy and Marilyn Thompson. You'll also hear contributions from our Walter Shorenstein Media and Democracy Fellow, Bob Schieffer. The Fellows discuss a wide range of topics, including media business models, coverage of the 2016 election, campaign finance reform and much more. You'll be able to read all the Fellows' research papers in the summer by visiting shorensteincenter.org. So welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the interim director of the Shorenstein Center. So we have four. Uh, these are our fellows who've been with us all semester. Uh, and the fellowship program is one of the great delights of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, we have a new group every fall. They bring us new ideas. Hopefully they leave with a few <laughs> ideas that we've been able to impart to them. But uh, we've always thought that this was kind of the gem uh, in the Shorenstein Center's uh, mix of things that we do this short the fellowship program. Uh, I'm going to introduce them very briefly so I don't need up very much time. So, and we'll go in this order. <clears throat> so, Joanna Dunaway, uh, who is on the faculty at Texas A&M uh, University before that, LSU. Uh, next to her, Joanna Jolly, BBC's South Asia editor. Next to Joe is Dan Kennedy, who's on the faculty at Northeastern, author of The Wired City. And on the end, Marilyn Thompson, uh, deputy editor at Political. Uh, before that, Reuters, Washington Post, and others. So, um, and we've asked each of them to speak for three, four, up to five minutes, and then we'll open it up uh, for a conversation. We'll start with uh, Joanna. Hi, thanks so much to all of you for being here. So I'll just kind of briefly explain what I'm what I'm studying while I'm here at the center and how I got interested in the topic. So. Mainly, I'm studying how the changing information environment is affecting the choice of news and attention to news. And primarily, the thing that I'm studying here is what the shift to mobile as our primary means of accessing the internet means for news engagement, <coughs> learning from news, news consumption, and choosing to look at news in the first place. And I'm taking kind of a specific focus on Latinos in the US context, partly because they are disproportionately more likely to have um, mobile devices as their primary means through which they access the internet. So we refer to that as mobile only internet <coughs> access. And for a lot of different reasons that I kind of expect for that to shape patterns of news engagement and attention, but also to um, for those patterns to be revealed in differences across groups. So I want to understand what that means for Latinos in general in the US context. So I became interested in this topic because one person uttered one phrase. Um, when I was still at LSU, we had um, a panel similar to this format. And one of the speakers was Gary Segura, who is a Latino politics scholar. And he was talking about various trends in Latino um, political behavior and public opinion, and he said, you know, 70% of Latinos are cell-only internet users. And I was like, I just had a eureka moment that no one's paying attention to that particular drastic difference between sort of everyone else, if you look at the U.S. case as a whole, and the Latino population. And all of the things that we already know about all the various <coughs> ways that changes to the media environment matter suggest that there are all these implications. But everyone's studying those implications as if everyone is kind of your average white guy who sits at a desk all day in front, in front of a wired computer and who also has a cell phone, a smartphone, and a tablet sitting right next to their computer. Um, we don't tend to think about the implications of the changing media environment for people who can only access the internet through their cell phone. And it has all sorts of implications for their likelihood of looking up news online, seeking news online, and especially for making partic particular kinds of content choices. You can probably all think about the ways in which your news seeking online might be curbed or shaped if you were only doing it through your smartphone. So that's how I became interested in the topic, and it's been really fun and exciting to have the opportunity to study this here. And that's it. Joe. 
Okay, so um, I'm Joanna Jolly, and uh, before I came here, I was the BBC South Asia editor, um, covering news from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and Afghanistan. Um, but probably the main area of interest for me has been India for the past few years. Um, I'm half Indian. I've spent a lot of time uh, living and working there. And um, the one the one event that's happened in India over the last five years that seems to have really um, changed uh, or, or had the potential to change society was the 2012 Delhi gang rape, which you probably remember because it, w it did make headlines around the world. So when I had the opportunity to come here, I wanted to look at the Indian media's coverage of the Delhi gang rape to see whether the conversation around sexual violence had really changed or not, because um, the gang rape did get an awful lot of coverage, much more than um, any uh, rape had before, and, and much much more than most kind of news events, actually. It got a, a huge amount of focus. Um, so I wanted to look at the quality of that coverage and, and look at how uh, the trends within that coverage. And so I've been studying that with Uzra Khan, who's uh, my research assistant. And uh, we've been trying to unpick the data a little bit and also trying to talk to editors and reporters to find out what they have, what they think of the coverage and how they think it has gone. And it's been really interesting. I mean, we can, we can pretty much uh, prove that, yes, rape is now an issue or sexual violence is now an issue that's covered a lot more by the uh, press in India, and I'm particularly focusing on the English language uh, press in India. Um, but then when you look at the quality of how it's covered, you can see that certain stereotypes um, persist um, with the coverage. Um, so uh, this rape in particular got a lot of coverage because it was very violent, it, sens it was very sensational, um, the victim seemed to be beyond blame, nobody could sort of say it was because she she was wearing a particular clothes or she'd invited it in any way. Um, and it's this sort of rape that, that tends to get covered within the Indian media, not the sort of everyday rape. And if you look at the statistics, sort of over 90% of sexual violence happens within the home or with people you know, and isn't this sort of violent stranger rape that, that does seem to get portrayed in the media. And we found that um, the, the media used this incident to push campaigns um, that didn't have a lot to do with female security, but had a lot to do with um, the campaigns they were already interested in, like, for instance, lowering the age of juvenile responsibility. Um, and then campaigns that they could have pushed, which had to do with um, empowering women, such as making uh, rape within marriage a crime, they didn't push. So that was quite interesting. And so, uh, well, just to conclude, um, yes, there's been more coverage of rape in India, but it's um, it reinforces sort of patriarchal uh, stereotypes that were there before and hasn't changed the conversation all that much. So thanks. Um, well, I'm Dan Kennedy, as, as Tom said. And uh, I came here to advance a book I'm working on about uh, some newspapers that have acquired wealthy owners in the last few years, how they're reinventing those papers, and what lessons that might have for the rest of the newspaper business. And uh, the paper I've been focusing on during my time at Shorenstein is the Washington Post under uh, Jeff Bezos, the founder and chief executive of Amazon. And uh, the Post is an interesting case study because there are uh, some aspects about it that are absolutely unique and kind of hard to uh, imagine what lessons those might hold for other newspapers. But there are some other um, aspects to the Post that could be applied more generally. I mean, first of all, the Post has some built-in advantages that other newspapers don't have. It, its location in Washington uh, made it very easy for Bezos to pivot from the Post being a regional newspaper to a national newspaper. Uh, he has a lot of money, as you may have heard, and uh, that provides the Post with plenty of runway uh, as long as he's willing to keep spending the money. And uh, the way he's run Amazon over the years suggests that he is willing to do that. Finally, he's able to leverage the Post with Amazon, as he's already doing, by uh, making the national digital edition part of Amazon Prime. So these are things that other newspaper owners <laughs> can't do. Uh, but there are things that uh, other newspaper owners could learn from. Now, lesson number one is that there are no lessons. His uh, chief technology officer, Shailesh Prakash, 
told me in an interview that uh, he really has no idea how the Post is going to end up uh, monetizing this very large audience that they're building online. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, some of the things they're doing, I see five ideas so far that I think people ought to pay attention to. First is the benefits of private versus public ownership. Um, when Bezos bought the Post for $250 million, he took the Post private. Uh, so no longer does the Post have to worry about quarterly profits, pleasing shareholders. Uh, Bezos is free to do exactly what he wants with it, uh, to spend and experiment. Uh, lesson two is that there's value in getting as big as possible. And the Post has gotten very big under Jeff Bezos. It now has 73 million unique visitors a month to its uh, website and other digital platforms, making the Post by far the largest newspaper website in the country. Um, again, they don't know how they're going to monetize that, but their attitude is it's better to figure out how to monetize a huge audience than a small one. Don't pursue change for the sake of change. Uh, both Shailesh Prakash and Marty Barron, the editor, uh, are holdovers from the Graham era. Uh, two terrific leaders, and Jeff Bezos had the uh, sense to keep them in place. Uh, technology is central to the mission, it, not just support for the newsroom and the business side. Um, don't fear changes that you can't control. Uh, the Post has gone all in on Facebook Instant Articles, Apple News, and some other distributed platforms, uh, even though people at the Post have the same concern about loss of control over their distribution that any news executive have. They, nevertheless, they say, we have to be where our users are. Uh, and then, finally, be patient. Uh, it's easier to be patient when you have Jeff Bezos's net worth, uh, but nevertheless, I think uh, since nobody really knows where we're going, it's important to be able to take a long view and uh, and not give up too quickly. So um, I could talk about this all day, but I'll <laughs> leave it there. Marilyn. Okay, uh, let, I'm Marilyn Thompson, and let me start by asking for a show of hands. Uh, many of you just filed your federal income tax returns. How many of you checked the tiny little box that enabled you to make a $3 individual contribution to the presidential election campaign fund? Andrew. Did. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Um, uh, statistically speaking, uh, this year probably about 5% of American taxpayers checked that box and made that voluntary contribution to this fund. Um, and I set out to look at the presidential fund and what this is all about. Um, and it's just been a really interesting exploration. Uh, at this moment, there's about 301 million, I just checked the most recent figures, sitting in the pot known as the presidential election campaign fund. Uh, the only problem is none of the candidates want this money and they aren't touching it. Uh, so far, out of 23 um, contenders for the, the race, only one has filed a request for any part of that money, uh, Martin O'Malley, who submitted uh, the very <coughs> extensive paperwork that allowed him to get close to $1 million in public funds right around the time he dropped out. Uh, the program has fallen into such disuse over the years that it currently has one employee at the Federal Election Commission, uh, a GS-14, who monitors the request and the distribution of this public money. Uh, so Andrew Levine, who I just scolded, <laughs> 
Uh, we set out to look at how this fund has worked over the years. It, its rich history, which is quite fascinating, dating back to 1907 when Teddy Roosevelt introduced the idea, um, partially in response to the criticism that he was taking at the time over uh, allegations that he took too much corporate money to get elected. Very familiar theme. Uh, but as the years progressed, uh, it was actually turned into a law that was proposed by uh, Russell Long uh, during the Lyndon Johnson administration. Um, and it worked very effectively for a while. At, at various points in time, people were give, checking the box and giving their first a dollar, then it went up to three dollars in 1993. And it was working. Uh, some candidates, Jimmy Carter, uh, Ronald Reagan, some other significant figures in our political life really relied on this fund to get their grounding and they wouldn't have gotten elected without it. So something has gone dreadfully wrong with this fund and its usage and it all has to do with the cost of campaigning and the rules and restrictions that were uh, imposed in the law. Uh, a candidate who wants money from the fund has to agree to only spend certain amounts uh, in each state and then to, uh, has to qualify through this rigorous process to get the money. Um, and then they have to limit, you know, limited spending in an era of big money is a tricky proposition. This fund has actually been nicknamed the Losers Fund uh, because that has sometimes been the way it has played out. Uh, so uh, Bernie Sanders uh, probably fits the closest model of what the fund set out to accomplish, which was bringing small donors into the system, uh, making average people want to participate in the political process. And yet Bernie Sanders didn't want any money from this fund, and when he was questioned about it by Chuck Todd, why he wasn't at least setting a model. He said, it's a disaster. So what are we going to do about it? The money's sitting there, it's frozen, can't be used for any other purpose. Uh, I will explore various uh, options. Uh, the Democrats and Republicans see this very differently, and you might kind of guess how that would uh, fall. Um, but to find out the conclusions, you will have to read my very long paper. Uh, and Andrew was a huge help, not only with this, but with another little side interest that we developed uh, and wrote about uh, last week in U.S. News about Trump's uh, overwhelming uh, use of the television network uh, news in getting his message across. and some sort of analysis about how he did it. Andrew, did you want to say anything more? Maybe um, we'll get questions on yeah, that. I'm sure everyone read it. Marilyn, <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank all of you. So the, uh, one of the things that we provide each of the fellows is a research assistant. And uh, you, could you raise your hand? You've got a couple here at least, three. Uh, Seventy-five percent, pretty good. I, you know, the uh, um, now normally I ask a question, but uh, I've been asking questions of these people all semester, so uh, I'm going to pass on that. And uh, you know, let's take questions. And and uh, three students just had their hands up, so you, you may or may not want to <clears throat> jump back in. But again, students first, and then we'll open it up to the to the to the full group. Yeah, please. Um, my is for uh, Mr. Kennedy. So, well, could you identify yourself? Oh, sorry. Lucy Boyd, um, an MPP2 student here. Um, and Bob's research assistant. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, my question is about so the monetization of the news sector now, because my brother works in tech, and he does a lot with paywalls. And so I'm curious what, if any of your research revealed how paywalls could become more effective, what their role is, maybe like what their share of profits could be from a paywall versus advertisements versus other means 
I'm just curious about those. Well, that's a really interesting question, and it's one of the hottest. The question of paywalls really is one of the hottest questions in the news business right now. You know, when we headed down this road, you often hear people say, we never should have given our content away. Well, you know, let's, let's back up a minute. Um, when we started down that road 20 years ago, uh, it wasn't necessarily uh, a, a crazy idea if you could eliminate the costs of printing and distribution. Uh, I think that we had every reason to believe that uh, we could become a strictly an advertiser-supported um, business enterprise. And then Craigslist came along, and that was the end of the classified ads. And then it turned out that banner ads uh, on online really don't work very well, and they became increasingly ubiquitous, and with ubiquity comes a loss of value. And so the other side of the advertising equation began to deteriorate. So finally, I'd say maybe in the last half dozen years, uh, after years of thinking that uh, we could have free advertiser-supported news online, you started seeing uh, an increase in the use of paywalls by um, digital news organizations. Uh, the Washington Post was late to this, uh, but they're, um, they've embraced it. Uh, they unveiled their paywall about a month before Jeff Bezos announced <coughs> he was going to buy the Post, but he's kept it in place. And as with most paywalls, you get a certain number of free stories a month. That's the idea is to entice you into become, becoming a paying customer. Uh, now, the Washington Post use of paywalls is a little bit different from what we've seen at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, even the Boston Globe. Uh, first of all, it's extremely leaky. All kinds of people get free access to the Post. If you have an EDU e email address, you can have free access to the Washington Post forever. Uh, there you go. I don't know why, but I do. Yep, exactly. Also, the Washington Post is charging an unusually small amount of money. Uh, if you want to get just their national digital edition with no local news, it's $48 a year, which is extremely inexpensive. Uh, but they're trying to catch up. The New York Times has had a lot of success. They've got more than a million paying subscribers. The Post does not report their number of digital subscribers, one of the other advantages of being a privately held company. Uh, but there's a sense that they're quite a bit behind the Times and they're trying to catch up. Uh, but clearly, in a post-advertising environment, uh, if the audience is not willing to pay for the news, and I should say it's not clear that they are willing to pay for the news, but if they're not, then there really isn't much other way of supporting journalism at this point other than various nonprofit models or, or that sort of thing. Ozer Khan, um, I'm Joanna's research assistant. Um, my question is also for Dan about um, when you when you look at corporate ownership, how do you effectively tackle the question of editorial independence? And especially in the case of Jeff Bezos, so do you think how how do you analyze as an outsider the question of whether the Washington Post could have done, say, the expose of Amazon that the New York Times did? Um, and, and whether you, as an outsider, doing, just doing interviews, how do you get a sense of how independent um, they actually are with a corporate owner? Okay, uh, you know, I think that uh, that's a great question, and it's something that I think has faced um, news organizations forever. There's nothing really new about this. I would point out that before Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, uh, the Graham family, which controlled the publicly traded company that, that published the Washington Post, uh, also owned a rather controversial for-profit educational service uh, known as Kaplan. And so there were always questions about how's the Post covering Kaplan? Are they doing that fairly or not? Um, you know, what I would say is that people at the Post uh, have told me uh, that, and 
Jeff Bezos is on record as saying this, go ahead and cover Amazon as independently and as toughly as you want. Um, I'm not going to talk to you because he doesn't talk to anybody. Uh, very rarely does he give interviews. And, you know, there will be no repercussions for that. Now, the Post obviously did not take the initiative in doing that big story on uh, the Amazon workplace that you're talking about. That was the New York Times. Um, whether they would have or not, I don't know. Um, I had, quite frankly, I had some problems with that story. I thought it was a little, a little simplistic. I don't think the Times made the case that Amazon is any more of a corporate hellhole to work for than any of those tech companies out on the West Coast. But nevertheless, I, I take your point. The Boston Globe has to deal with uh, how do they cover the Red Sox, uh, not just as a baseball team, but as, a, as an important business and cultural institution in Boston, given that John Henry, who's the principal owner of the Red Sox, is also the owner of the Boston Globe. I think maybe the best that we can hope for is that by having a diversity of ownership, um, you know, the New York Times will go after Amazon in, may, in maybe ways that the Washington Post doesn't feel comfortable in doing. And there are news organizations that may go after the Red Sox. Uh, I don't, you know, as a baseball team, fine. I'm a baseball fan. But I mean uh, as a business and cultural force in the community in ways that maybe the Globe doesn't feel comfortable in doing. And so I, I think that... Uh, that may be the best that we can hope for, uh, but I would really emphasize again that I, I don't think this is any different than it's ever been. Okay, John, and then we'll open it up after. Uh, my name is John Gibbs. I'm an MPA student here at the Kennedy School. Uh, first of all, thank you all for coming. And this is yet another question for Dan. <laughs> Everybody loves to talk about newspapers. There seems to be this uh, belief among many people that, especially with the advent of social media and getting news on the internet, that um, the way we receive news is becoming more polarized. So if you're on the left, you tend to, one, um, read the news stories of your friends on the left in your Facebook feed, which is how lots of people get their news, like only on their Facebook feed. Or you look at news sites that you believe to be on, on that part of the spectrum. And likewise, if you're on the right side, you'll tend to like those news stories of your friends on Facebook who have the same beliefs as you, and also view sites that are more conservative in nature. Um, if that's the case, then how do you see that impacting uh, Washington Post, especially with uh, Bezos now owning it, with him being a tech guy, do you see him taking advantage of this to somehow, I don't know, have a algorithm that tailors the news that it gives you to your ideological preferences and monetizing this or taking advantage of it? Or do you see this as maybe being more harmful to the mainstream uh, news organizations or what's your take on that? Uh, great question, and uh, in fact, this is something that Marty Barron, the executive editor of the Washington Post, has thought about quite a bit and, and often speaks about when he does public appearances. I mean, it's fine uh, to, be, um, to have a point of view. I'm not saying that you want all of your news to have a point of view, but I think it's fine as a news consumer to have a point of view and to seek out some sources of information that may tilt to your uh, particular preferences. Uh, but one of the things Marty Barron points out is that we've reached this era of extreme polarization where people are looking not just to have their opinions reinforced, but it's really their own sense of facts. Uh, where, you know, we've, we've had this belief for years now that, that President Obama is, is, is a Muslim who was not born in the United States. And there are people who just believe this thoroughly, and they have... 29%. 20, yeah, there you go. And there, and there are news sources that reinforce this. 43% of Republicans. Okay. <laughs> I just gave a talk on this. <laughs> okay. Well, I, okay, then, then perhaps we, you also know the percentages of people who believe that the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, was somehow involved in the attacks of 9-11. 43%. 43%. But that was six years after 9-11. Okay. It's okay. gone down somewhat yeah. since. But. So this is, this is a real issue, and it's something that we have to grapple with. And I think that we see it reflected in our politics. I think that what we can hope for 
is that some of the really big, great news organizations that are devoted to getting it right, uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times, NPR, CBS News, of course, uh, are going to find a way to thrive and move forward so that there is kind of a standard set of facts that we're working off uh, uh, and, and not just uh, these, these extremely polarized opinion, opinion sites that we rely on. Can I just add on to that? Uh, that is, what you cite is absolutely correct. You know, and, and it is one of the reasons that we've become so polarized, because what has happened, I mean, when I used to, when I started out, uh, the question I always get was, is the media biased? Well, uh, the answer now is, uh, you can find the news served up to you in any form. It's like going into a restaurant and ordering eggs. You can get them scrambled, you can get them uh, sunny side up. You can get it any way you want to. If you want it from the conservative side, they would you know, the liberal side, the vegetarian side, you can find that out there now. And, and what has happened is that we are now basing our opinions on different sets of data, mm -hmm. on different facts, because the people, unless you're, you know, reading and listening to a variety of sources, if you listen to it from one way, you're going to have one set of facts and you're going to base your opinion on that. And if you're listening to this outfit, you're going to have a different set of facts and base your opinion on that. And, and really probably because this, uh, the information was so overwhelmed with information, uh, that, that's probably one of the reasons that the country is so divided right now. Uh, we, I can't remember it in other points in history when we were basing our opinions. There usually was a common set of data, a common set of facts, and that's no longer the case now. And it's, it's just, just what Dan is talking about. And that's one of the things that, that all of us are dealing with now. And I mean, uh, kind of the role of the mainstream media uh, now is to try to cut through this great maw of information, some of which is biased, some of which is just totally inaccurate, some of which is false and on purpose false to cut through all that and help people to understand, look, we've checked it out, here's what we think is relevant. But that's that's the great challenge facing journalism right now. Okay. Floor is open for questions. So I'm going to call on Derek, but uh, Derek actually is going to be sitting here next December. Derek <laughs> is one of our fellows for next year. Derek. Yeah. Click. This question for, uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, this question for Joanna Jolly. Um, uh, toward the very end of your remarks, you said that um, despite the um, uproar and horror over the, the, the daily rate, that not a lot has changed. And I just wanted to go into a little more detail the media's role in keeping the status quo. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, one, th one interesting thing, a sort of sidebar to that, that that we found out is that there's been more of a debate now on the idea of false rapes. Um, the law changed after the Delhi 2012 uh, gang rape, um, and, it, and in many ways it has made it easier for women to report rape. And now we're seeing a backlash in the media where people are talking about uh, false rapes, women falsely accusing ma rape, men of rape, um, and that's become a narrative that, that's coming out. Um, so straight after the Delhi gang rape in 2012, there was quite a lot of feminist-led uh, feminist debate in the media talking about many issues that uh, affect Indian women and bringing it back to the issue of sexual violence. So saying, you know, right from, right from birth or from conception, the idea of female feticide or less uh, nutrition for female children, going on to dowries and the way women are treated in society, all this contributes to this idea that women are much more vulnerable and that sexual violence is, is a real issue and that women are, are very unprotected within the public space. So that debate went on for a little while, and then that sort of fell off and was kind of replaced by um, by this idea that the, deba the, the debate moved on to criminal justice and men and um, whether or not we should jail uh, people under the age of 18 for committing crimes. And it moved away from the idea of how can we empower women in society and make <coughs> sure that they are more protected and that they are more welcome within the public space. 
Um, and so I mentioned a little bit the marital rape debate. So straight after the Delhi gang rape, there was calls to make uh, rape within marriage illegal because it's, it's, it's not a crime in, in India at the moment. And there was, a, there was a lot of articles written by feminists or feminist organizations or, or women in the newspapers um, to start with, but then these started to peter off and the newspapers didn't really follow up on this. And so we had just a few weeks ago the minister responsible for this saying that actually India was not going to criminalize marital rape because India had a, a special set of circumstances which um, made marriage a, a sacrament and, and they couldn't possibly accept the idea that you could have rape within marriage. Um, and considering if you think about all the people who were protesting on the streets um, straight away and the massive crowds and demonstrations, <coughs> that is quite unusual, really, that that is the sort of outcome of this massive social movement to try and change things for women in India. So just a quick follow-up. Is it conservative ownership of newspapers and television that has let, you know, what's the role of the leadership in the actual ownership of the media I was looking in particular at the English language print media and they're very commercial um, organizations and uh, yes the ownership is is male status quo the senior editors are all men um, women are reporting and they are in the newsroom but they're not making it up to the sort of higher echelons of, of newspaper management so yeah my name is Mitch I'm an HKS student this question is for Marilyn uh, so there's a Fairly large protests going on in D.C. right now, last week at least, over the weekend, called Hashtag Democracy Awakening and Democracy Spring, um, which brought together a number of groups on the left. A core of the issue is campaign finance reform. Mm -hmm. <coughs> I just read that 1,400 people have been arrested as part of this protest, which is the most in history for a nonviolent direct action protest in Washington. And yet, from my own left-wing biased media that I consume regularly, the narrative seems to be that the media is not covering this protest mm. well or if at all. Um, do you agree with that assessment? And what do you think is the media's role, complicitness in covering campaign finance as a broader subject? Well, I have a problem with the media's coverage of campaign finance in general because it, it, it is such an important topic, and yet it's so incredibly hard to penetrate um, and so as the news cycle has changed and reporters are under so many demands it's it's much much harder to find the time to do the kind of rigorous reporting that actually uncovers abuses in campaign finance or candidate spending or any of the rest of it combined with that you have this incredibly ineffective regulatory uh, apparatus. Um, the the coverage of that protest, you're telling me something I, I didn't know. Nor um, did I. And I find that really fascinating. I, I'm assuming, and I will go out of here and start looking at it, but I'm assuming that it started small and morphed <laughs> and they weren't paying attention. Um, but let me let me find out, and we can talk about that later. Let me just add one thing okay. onto that <laughs> because this is what? something <laughs> that I that I I have been going on about campaign finance reform as long as I've as I've been a reporter. And James Reston, the great columnist for the New York Times for so many years, once wrote, "Americans will do anything about South America except read about it." <laughs> and I think the same holds true about campaign finance reform. It is so difficult to get people, and maybe we just haven't figured out how to tell this story yet, to, to help people to understand how this impacts on their life. Because they mm -hmm. think, oh, it just has to do with politics, it has to do with politicians, it doesn't have to do with me. Well, it has everything. Yeah. to do with every citizen because that is how we're in the mess that we are in today. Our campaigns have become so overwhelmed by money and, and have become so odious. That, and, and I made this that last semester when I was up here, Tom Patterson will tell you, I stayed on message the whole time because uh, that, that was all I talked about. What has happened is this whole process has become, I don't want to use the word corrupt, but it's just really become so odious and, and, and money-driven 
that more and more serious people are simply turning away from it and saying, I don't want any part of it. I don't want to run for an office. I don't want to go through what you have to go through and go through begging people for money. So the result is we are left with the people who are willing to do that. And so the talent pool is just not what it used to be, and, and that's what's wrong here. And if you, can, if you can find a way while you're here at the Kennedy School to figure out how to get people to understand how important it is to them individually, uh, you will have performed a great service. I've been trying for 25 yeah, exactly. years, and I haven't gotten them interested yet, but I, I'm, I haven't given up on it. And Dan, uh, Dan says that he has been hearing complaints about media coverage. I, I have, uh, and I'm on a weekly media panel show on Channel 2 called Beat the Press, and I've, 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 I have already been lobbied that we should talk about the lack of coverage this Friday. I, I don't know whether it's going to make it as a topic or not. Interesting. You know, I'm often not hugely sympathetic to complaints that protests are not receiving adequate coverage just because there were so many protests, so many demonstrations. But they obvi obviously a protest can reach a critical mass where it's so much mm -hmm. larger than the ordinary that the media should be held accountable if they're not giving it its, its proper coverage. Lisa. I have a question for Joanna Dunaway. Mm -hmm. um, so the Latino population is really important with respect to voting. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if the 2016 candidates know about how Latinos are consuming media and if they've done anything. You know, that's a great question. I don't know actually the answer to that. I mean, I think one way to think about it is that that some candidates are naturally going to have more mobile and social media skills than others. So um, we know that, I mean, people talk about how Trump is, has a very effective use of Twitter because he says things that keep people interested, but he also has a personal style on Twitter where people feel like he's at least influencing what his staffer is saying or he's saying it himself. Um, but whether they're paying attention to the nuances of this audience differences, I don't know, I don't know, I think that they definitely are at the lower levels, so people running for maybe House, Senate, and below. At the presidential level, I'm not sure they can s slice and dice as effectively yet or whether they're aware of these particular differences in the extent to which different groups are mobile only. Um, I'm sure there are targeted efforts, but it's also not clear what the general audience behaviors in within the Latino community is because they're such a heterogeneous group based on different levels of acculturation and different language, different levels of language use that there's lots of different um, sort of potential news diets, which is another reason I'm kind of interested in this area. There are language differences, there are access differences. Um, and then there are even broadcast availability differences across markets. So it's a lot of kind of complicated formula that you would need to think through to figure out, you know, what Latinos are where and how might I best target them because there's also mobile versus non, but there's 20 different ways on your mobile that you can access content. So my guess is that everyone has a lot more research to do on that from the candidate and campaign perspective as well. Please. Um, my name's Hamish, I'm a union fellow. I have a question for Dan. To what extent do uh, investors like Jeff Bezos have a distorting effect on our understanding of where the, sorry, where the market is at, where the media market, the news market is at currently? There's been a lot of talk about venture capital investments and things like Vice, giving a sort of overblown impression of the success of those models. Does someone like Bezos and the kind of the long-termism of his approach lead us as a sector down a path that maybe is not sustainable? It, it may. <laughs> In brief, it may. You know, one of the other papers that I'm looking at, not as part of my Shorenstein Fellowship, but more broadly, is uh, the Boston Globe, which has acquired its own billionaire owner, uh, John Henry. Now, even billionaires are not generally as well-heeled as Jeff Bezos. And uh, in the case of the Boston Globe, uh, the initial optimism has given way to more of a sense of reality. Um, 
he started the Globe started a uh, very interesting website devoted to covering the Catholic Church called Crux, and um, they ended their ownership of it recently. Uh, fortunately, it is continuing under um, new ownership. Um, he did some layoffs last year in order to bring uh, spending in alignment with revenues, uh, the sort of thing that Jeff Bezos is not doing. Uh, if you visit the Washington Post, as I have a couple of times, um, got this beautiful new headquarters. I mean, it's just absolutely unbelievable. And you walk in there, and it's like you're walking into a bubble where, where the money is flowing and all things are possible. Uh, but uh, eventually, even Jeff Bezos is going to want to find a way to break even uh, or maybe even turn a profit with this. And what it all comes down to is um, can this enormous amount of uh, traffic that they're generating, digital traffic, somehow be translated into um, paying customers? And uh, we have learned in recent years, one of the reasons that newspapers have um, embraced paywalls, but we've learned in recent years that there were real limits to the huge traffic free news site uh, model, which is what we had embraced for quite a while. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it could very well have a distorting effect, except that I don't think anybody's under any illusions to, as to what's going on. And people are just hoping that, that Bezos will hit upon some secret sauce that, that they can all take advantage of. Could I ask uh, Marilyn to talk a little bit about your research on Trump? Uh, yes, and this is where Andrew might be able to chime in. Um, uh, Andrew, who's a data guy, unlike me, uh, did a very interesting analysis from, uh, from a website that tracks uh, closed caption broadcast, and we were able to look at trends over time, looking at specific sort of seminal moments in the campaign to see how much coverage, how many mentions Trump was getting versus other candidates. And our conclusion was 52% overall. 54% since he announced. 54% since he announced, but with huge spikes whenever he would make any kind of inflammatory comment. And uh, we concluded that he, w he didn't need news to dominate the news. In fact, he made his own news, and that became sort of the secret sauce of, of the campaign. We have very colorful uh, graphics, all of them compiled by Andrew. There was this, this interesting finding that <coughs> his coverage was kind of coming down. Uh, there, there was less of it in relation to the other candidates whenever there was actual campaign event related news to cover. So when the primaries were coming up or when there were uh, debates to cover, there was a little bit more coverage for the other candidates, and Trump's was coming down a little bit more, especially after the second and third Republican debates where it was thought that he had lackluster performances. There was a little bit more parity, and then all of a sudden, uh, in November and December, related to the Paris and San Bernardino attacks, his coverage came way up after his responses to those. He didn't let go very much since. So let me ask, I'm gonna ask Joanna, this one, the close one, the question. <laughs> Following. So, you know, you all talked earlier uh, about, and Bob joined that conversation about the kind of this range of offerings in the English language. You didn't use the English language press that term, but um, you know, that's what I think most of the people here are thinking about when we talk about that kind of range of opinions that increasingly kind of suffused the new system. Um, in the Spanish language press, do you have the same kind of range of opinions, or is it much more constricted? Is it more like the traditional press in uh, kind of playing it down the middle and pretty much tightly within the bounds of kind of what uh, officials are talking about? I don't think so. I think what we see 
at least the research I've done, and it's been a little while since I've done research looking directly at the content differences between Spanish language and English language um, news. But what we found in over more than one study um, was that because Spanish language media have sort of a different, they have kind of a different mission in the sense that they, they, ha they also have a niche audience. Um, even though the Latino community, um, broadly speaking, um, is very heterogeneous, they still have usually a common set of overlapping interests that's more similar to each other than the overall mass media English language audience, which means that they can make their content way more focused towards the interests of their audience. And because they are for-profit media as well, they tend to target their content not in sort of an ideological persuasive way, but they're, for example, more likely to focus on issues having to do with the border or having to do with immigration policy or having to do with issues of race and politics or race and ethnicity and things like that. So their content is not very likely, I don't think, to reflect kind of the typical range of elites in the American political um, establishment, it's more likely to reflect the range of elite discussion that has to do with particular policy interests um, that are more likely to be disproportionately interesting to the Latino community, broadly speaking. Hey, Bob. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm Robert Smith, a sociologist. This question is for all four of you or anybody. Um, I, I tend to read the New York Times, and I see a kind of a bias in their reporting um, regarding uh, Bernie Sanders. I'm not an avid Bernie Sanders supporter, but he's often contrasted with Trump. And I think that's a very false comparison. Uh, David Brooks in today's times makes that comparison, essentially blaming uh, Sanders for not having nuanced opinions compared to Hillary. But if you just think about it, Sanders has new nuanced opinions on guns and also uh, on Israel. And Hillary certainly doesn't. And of course, Trump is all over the place. Um, I guess the basic question, rather than the observation, is what drives uh, this analogy uh, or comparison? Um, or am I just? Misreading the paper. Can I make a guess? You guys might have better opinions on this than I do, but the I've seen the same thing of frequent comparison between the two, and I've also seen a lot of comparisons of the voters. So my the the, the primary way that I've seen comparisons between the two are in this kind of narrative of the insurgent candidate frame, and I'm just wondering if maybe there's a bleed over to where. It's kind of part of this bigger effort to kind of explain why these guys. Because it, even though we've now talked about it quite a bit and we're talking more and more about the voter side or the voter preferences or the voter anger or whatever that's making these candidates, I think people are still trying to wrap their heads around why Bernie Sanders and why Donald Trump. And so there's sort of a natural inclination to try to explain them together. Unless you've seen that particular bias about the nuances of opinion before in the times. So it kind of depends on what else you've seen. But, but my guess is that it's more of kind of just a bleed over effect of trying to explain why these two. I, I, uh, I think that uh, they are very much alike and I think they come from the same place. And I think they come from this deep frustration and anger and impatience uh, with a government that has come to a complete halt and can't seem to get anything done. And they both offer basically simple solutions. Uh, I'm not sure that I agree with either of their solutions, but I, I think they've made a very accurate assessment of what people uh, are, are upset about. Bernie Sanders uh, blames the banks, Donald Trump uh, blames the government. But I think they both come from this same frustration and outrage that a lot of people there are, are feeling. And I, I think there are very, very similar. I mean, I think if Trump gets a nomination and, and uh, Bernie doesn't, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some Bernie people didn't vote, didn't vote for Trump. I mean, that's just a, 
just my opinion. I, I would add that I think that uh, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, although there are vast differences between the two, uh, their essential appeal is a certain type of economic populism. And uh, I think that there are indeed some surveys that show that uh, a surprising number of Trump voters consider Sanders to be their second choice and vice versa. And it kind of brings me back to 1972 when we saw a similar phenomenon with George Wallace and George McGovern. There was, as, as different as those two candidates seemed to be, there was some crossover appeal uh, between supporters of McGovern and supporters of Wallace, and I think we're seeing kind of the same thing today. Marilyn, did you want to join us on this? I'm just finding the, uh, the idea that the New York Times is biased in favor of Hillary Clinton over Sanders. I find that very interesting uh, historically because I, I, just this morning I, I was reading a, um, a, a Taylor Branch uh, Clinton book uh, in which he taped, taped Bill Clinton in a series of conversations. There's a very lengthy Clinton uh, railing about the New York Times and how awful it is and how biased it is and how Hal Raines is the was the the <laughs> the devil. It, it, it's just very interesting to me how it now comes around to a different kind of criticism about the coverage. I have a question for, for Dan. Um, I think we. You know, in forums like this, can you hear me? I think we have a tendency in forums like this to, to, to think about um, the elite uh, national newspapers on the East Coast, like the Post and so on. But um, oh, I was wondering, you know, in fact, most news coverage happens on the regional and local level, and maybe that your research doesn't address this at all. But I was wondering what you, if you've done any research or have any thoughts about what's going to happen to new organizations on that level who don't Well, there, there's two levels to that. First of all, there's the large regional news organizations like the Boston Globe, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and et cetera. And um, they are in a particularly difficult position because they are neither big enough to appeal to a national audience nor small enough to really do the kind of day-to-day -day community coverage that, um, that, uh, that, that people like and need about their communities. So you see the globe continuing to have its struggles. You see the Philadelphia Inquirer actually has been acquired by a nonprofit community foundation. Uh, but then you go down another level to the real local level. And actually, this was the subject of my, uh, my last book, The Wired City, which you can still buy, um, <laughs> and uh, which looks at such things as the New Haven Independent, which is an online-only nonprofit news site, uh, small for-profit projects that have come up here and there. And, you know, some of these are doing well, but there aren't nearly enough of them. And you, you contrast that with the continued blight of bottom-line-oriented chain ownership, uh, which I think has taken a terrible toll on local journalism. Uh, I, I think that we have yet to see uh, much hope for um, local journalism, except for some small projects that have grown up here and there. I think it can be done, but it really takes the passionate dedication of somebody at that local level. And it, it's almost like, uh, you know, the great man or the great woman theory of journalism. You, you need that spark at the local level to do it. And if that person's <coughs> in place, I think you can do some very interesting things. But there, there's no real good systematic organizational way of doing it, minus that kind of enthusiasm. So um, I want to thank Marilyn and Dan and Joe and Joanna, uh, not only for today, but for the terrific semester. So thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by extrememusic.com.